Amen. We're turning back to uh, Daniel chapter 9. If you want to turn there in your scriptures with me, we're going to pick up uh, the message where we left off last Lord's Day and look a little more specifically at these 70 weeks. So I'll be focusing the attention there in verses 24 through 27. Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27. Now hear the word of the Lord. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war of desolations are determined." Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Our gracious Father, we come to this familiar but mysterious passage of Scripture, asking for your Spirit to anoint us freshly with his understanding that the things which are spiritually to be discerned can now be spiritually understood. We ask that you would give us your blessing upon this text as we make our way through it, and that we can see the great King of kings, the great Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up this day, whose train fills the temple and whose holiness and the knowledge of him goes throughout all of this world to the glory of God the Father. May our hearts be drawn closer to him this day. May our trust be in your good providence and your sovereignty more fully realized. And we ask that you would bring forth fruit from our lives that would please you and that would enable us to fulfill the ministry that each one of us has in our life that you've given us here. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are creatures of time. God has made us in the realm, dimensions of time and space and matter and And so as we consider prophecy and like this passage before us this day in Daniel chapter 9, it addresses a part or an element of time. And as we consider this, um, we consider that this is given to us according to our makeup and to our sphere here upon the earth. This passage that I just read is likely... I don't have any proof for this, but likely one of the most commented, if not the most commented, prophecy in all of scriptures. 
In the Olivet Discourse, where we currently left off in Matthew, we are currently in this study where Jesus is with his disciples on the Mount of Olivet, or the Olivet Discourse, which we would call. And he refers to these prophecies in Daniel specifically, indicating what is about to take place in his generation then. And since Daniel is such an important prophecy of the first advent and important to understanding Matthew 24, we're taking a couple of weeks to very briefly unpack some of what is here. There have been entire books that have been written on just these very few verses. So it's going to be a very rough sketch as we go over this this morning. I think it's appropriately that we focus on this, even during this Advent season, where we're reflecting back in the past of what God has done, even according to these prophecies, and we look forward to His coming again as we put our faith and our trust in His Word. Now, prophecy is not pre-written history. There's a difference between history and prophecy. History contains a chronology of events that have happened in the past. It's not just what happened, but it's a chronology of when they happened, a timeline, uh, if you will. Prophecy does not do that, and that is really one of the inherent differences that prophecy is not pre-written history. The intent and the purpose of prophecy is much different than a written history. Built into prophecy is an element of intentional ambiguity regarding the timing of the events prophesied. That's a sp- of the Spirit's intention in prophecy. The intention is to a prophecy in this way is to keep people vigilant, to keep them watchful, to stir up their faith and their faithfulness in good works, because they do not know exactly when prophecy will be fulfilled. Jesus would clearly explain explain prophecy in these very terms on uh, the sermon uh, in the the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 when he says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. He says, now it will come, and it will come in this generation, but you don't know that specific hour. But know this, that if any master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not been allowed into his house to be broken into. Therefore, you be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. In other words, he is saying that the prophecy that he has given is, has an intentional ambiguity regarding the time frame to make us, to stir us up, to be watchful, to be faithful in what Christ wants us to be about today. Now, the unusual thing about Daniel's prophecy is it has a built-in timeline with it. And very much so, a very specific timeline, unlike the majority of the other prophecies in Scripture. And God wanted such clarity in this particular passage of prophecy that when Jesus arrived on the scene, that no one would have an excuse in missing this prophecy. Now, even with the very specific timeline of these 70 weeks that Daniel gives us here, 
there are still quite a bit of ambiguities within the details of the prophecy that have caused a lot of challenge to modern-day interpreters. As interpreters of prophecy, we should always account for intentional ambiguities. Those act upon us in a certain way that shapes the way we think, that shapes our life, it shapes our behavior, and we need to, to embrace that, not try to figure out all the details where the Spirit does not intend for us to figure out all those details. When we try to nail down specific dates and time frames and the details specified beyond what God intends, that's where we get into trouble. I want you to keep that in mind today amidst the, the, the many prophetic utterances of interpretation that are going on in the world, on the radios, on TV, and commentaries that are being given. Keep that in mind. Our, uh, we need to be careful when we are approaching prophecy to allow the Spirit to do its work in us, to stir up faithfulness in us today. We need to be careful when one makes prophecy his entire platform of ministry. People tend to get in trouble theologically and ministerially when they do so. But the prophetic future is always balanced by the work that God has done in the past. As we are creatures of time, we need both time in the future and time of the past connected to our present to shape us in who we are. And that's what the prophets of old did. They weren't always speaking about the future. They were always relating those things to the past and the good work that God has done in the past so that we might be faithful in our future, in our present. So as we keep that in mind in Daniel's 70 weeks this morning, we want to ask ourselves the question, how do these things affect me in the present? How am I living for Christ today? Am I living faithfully? Is the prophecies of the Scripture yet to be fulfilled working in me in this manner for good? And that's what we should seek to, to answer and even ask ourselves. As we consider our text this morning, it's important to understand the covenantal framework in which this prophecy is given. So let's get into the text a little bit now, and let's see if we can unpack in the brief time that we have this morning at least uh, the rough draft of what's going on here. These 70 weeks are given in a covenantal framework. That's important to know. Because the prophecy is clearly framed in the terms of the covenant, in the sabbatical terms of jubilee. And that provides the context for it. So in Numbers 25, when, when we are reflecting back upon this covenantal structure of jubilee, it says you'll count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. That's seven times seven years is 49 years, and then that will begin to introduce the 50th year of Jubilee. That was a tremendous covenantal concept. 
It happened every 50 years in the nation of Israel. And what we have going on here in the 70 years is like a jubilee of jubilees. And so it's not seven Sabbath years, it will be 70 times seven Sabbath years. And then that will bring in the great jubilee. And so as we see this covenantal framework in which these 70 weeks are then framed, it's the time of the messianic redemption, that which brings in the, the true reality of the great jubilee that had been prophesied by object lesson every 50 years of the old covenant. The term here in Daniel 9, which says 70 weeks. The word weeks here is actually that covenantal word that was used back in Numbers 25 regarding the year of Jubilee, and it's a period of seven. And that really was what the word is, seven, just like we count for Jubilee. And so we have 70 times seven, which is 490 years. Now, according to the language, the structure of these 70 years are divided into three periods. We have one week of those 70, followed by 62 weeks of that. So you have the one week of 70, which would be 49 years, followed by 62 weeks, of those seven years, which is another 434 years, for a total of 69 years, or 483, before the 70th year begins. So we're considering here in this framework a total of 490 years, like we would be considering 49 of a jubilee. What this passage is detailing for us in Daniel's day is when Messiah would come. So what exactly is being prophesied here in 70 weeks? Let's look in verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are determined for you and your people and your holy city. First of all, let's capture that phrase. The 70 weeks are being prophesied for your people. And Daniel, that is specifically for Israel. Remember, Daniel is in Babylon and he is praying, confessing, covenantally confessing the sins of Israel. And so the angel comes and he answers him and he says, this prophecy is for your people and for your city. That would be Jerusalem. Then he goes on with six particular infinitives that will then describe what will go on in those 70 weeks. And that's why I kind of read it that way in the beginning. I'll read it again in verse 24. Six things. To finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sins. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. And number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, and to seal up the vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy. Those six infinitives 
are going to be what is determined for in the, within that 70 years of the prophecy that Daniel was given in answer to how he was praying. So we have in verse 24 a general statement of what's going to happen in those weeks. And in verse 25 through 27, it's going to add more of a specific time frame to those events. All of those things are going to be important for us to understand. The first thing, let's address, when do those 70 weeks begin? This is a, a, a time frame in which a clock is going to start of 490 weeks. It would be nice to know when that begins. Verse 25 says that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the, the first from the issuing of the decree to restore Jerusalem to the Messiah's coming will be 69 weeks. This first week plus 62 weeks, um, I'm sorry, seven weeks plus the 62, we have 69. So therefore, if you get the beginning right, it's just a matter of counting down from there these 62 weeks, and then you'll start the 70th week. Ah, but that's part of the intentional ambiguity of the prophecy. Daniel was in Babylon reflecting specifically on Jeremiah's uh, 70 years that they were going to be in the Babylonian exile, and he's praying, Lord, how long, when are the 70 weeks going to be up? And he's reflecting on that, and, and then the angel comes and he speaks to him, it's going to be 70 times 7 for the true release of exile. There will be that first installment of which I prophesied in 70 years. You'll go back and yet you'll still not have the full exile completed until Messiah comes. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's an exile under which all of humanity has been under due to sin, of which that will finally come to an end when Christ the Messiah comes. That will actually take place in 70 times seven years. But when does that start? Well, it, it tells us specifically here when the decree goes out to restore Jerusalem. Well, in the Persian kingdom, there were three Persian kings that actually gave decrees to go back and restore Jerusalem. Which decree? In fact, in Daniel's day, that would have been difficult to pinpoint precisely. So we have a, a general time frame, but precisely, is it this one, this one, or this one? What's interesting is even modern-day commentators who look back on that and can actually trace from the time Messiah came back or still do not agree on which decree it is. That's part of the inherent ambiguity of prophecy. The first decree that went out, we find in Ezra 1.1, with Cyrus in his first year issued a decree. That was going to be in the year 538. We know exactly when these decrees happened. The second decree was decreed by Artaxerxes in 458 when he sends Ezra back to reteach them the law. 
And the third decree was in 445 when Artaxerxes was concerning Nehemiah concerns the rebuilding of the city. And that seems to be, perhaps maybe in the decree, more fitting for what Daniel's prophecy was. But there is some ambiguity. Was it the second decree in 445 or 458 or the third one in 445? And as we look back on it today, there's still some differences there. Well, do we take in consideration they were on a lunar year and not a solar year? 360 days versus 365 days. And do we figure all that in over the course of 490 years or the 483? Is that even necessary, some commentators would say, because we're just, we're just counting down years and we're not necessarily considering the days of the year? Well, all of that then brings in kind of a, a, a hodgepodge of uncertainties. But the likely prospect of either the second or third degrees, and both of those would put us into the context of Jesus' public ministry toward the end. If we understood that the decree given by Artaxerxes, which was the latest one in 445, and if we took the lunar year into consideration, that's going to place us around 31 to 32 A.D. If that were the case, that would put us perhaps at the very end of Jesus' ministry. Or it could be the second decree, and if, when that went out in 458, uh, the year, not considering the lunar part of that, would put us right in the year of 25 to 26 A.D. Well, you have to remember that the calendar issues that took place as well when I tell you that Jesus was likely born in the year of 3 B.C. or 5 B.C., that kind of throws our thinking off a little bit, doesn't it? We should think that Jesus was born in 0 B.C. Well, there's calendar issues that went on. And we know the differences in some of those distinctions and can narrow it down to 3 or 5 B.C. because of some of the very specific points in Scripture that tells us when so-and-so's reign began in this first year. And that's, we, we can pinpoint exactly when these decrees took place and, and where some of those differences in the calendar are. So again, we've got even problems with our history time frame, much less our prophetic time frame. But we are very close in the realm so that there should be no question that what he was prophesying in his 490 years has to do with the Messiah coming and being cut off. The first week of years, that 49 years, is set off apart from 62 years. And we're not exactly sure what that means, but it, some commentators believe it was the sex, successful conclusion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that's followed by 62 weeks after that for a total of 69 weeks when then the Scripture says the Messiah will be cut off. And see, in verse 26 it clarifies, and after the 62 weeks meaning the total of 69, Messiah will be cut off. That's what these 70 weeks are all about. Messiah coming and being cut off in relationship to the covenant in which Daniel is praying. Keep that in context. 
talking about when the Messiah would come and what he would do when he came. As we look at now more specifically those six infinitives in verse 24, what's going to happen when he comes within those 70 weeks? More specifically, what's going to happen after the 69th week, as verse 26 tells us? That's going to help us tremendously understand Matthew 23 and Matthew 24. In fact, Jesus quotes this very passage in Matthew 24, I believe it's like verse 15, when he speaks about the things that are about to take place in his generation. But let's consider more specifically what Jesus was referring to and even who he was in these six infinitives that have a structure of being coupled together. Six, but they are three pairs, three couplets. And I think by understanding it in that way, it will help us to understand how these things all go together and how the couplets are actually revealing one and part of the same thing. The first couplet we find here is one and two, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin. Now, finishing the transgression here has to do with Israel, the nation for whom Daniel was praying covenantally, and finishing their transgression against God. That's what landed them in exile. And the context here is that this word of prophecy is coming to Daniel as he was praying and confessing the sins of Israel while he's in Babylon, acknowledging that the reason that they are there in exile was because of Israel's sins. And the finishing of the transgression culminates in the ministry of Christ when Israel's resistance as to him as their Messiah comes to a head and they reject him outright and they crucify him. They call for his crucifixion. And that corresponds then to this finishing up of this transgression of Israel to what Jesus says in Matthew 23 when he says in verse 34 and following, Therefore I indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The second part of that couplet is related to the first. The first is to finish the transgression, the national transgression of Israel culminating there in the rejection and crucifixion of Christ. And the second is to make an end of sins. Now there's a lexical challenge here. And the word to finish here, to make an end of, could either mean one of two things. It can mean to finish or it can mean to seal up. 
If it means to finish, it would mean then that Israel would, would finish the final culminating sin that would bring on her this great judgment that Jesus is reflecting upon or warning of in Matthew 23 and 24. If the word is to seal up, which actually most commentators favor, the word would mean to reserve the sins for punishment, to seal up. Like when Jesus gives a a word and he seals it up, he reserves it for the day in which that might be unfolded. When a scroll is sealed up, it is given the seal so that one day the seal can be broken and opened up. So sealing up is to be reserving something. And here to seal up the sins is reserving those sins for the day of punishment. That seems that it would fit well with what Jesus was saying in Matthew 23 regarding the sealing up of all of these sins and then punishment. Because Israel rejects all the prophets that were sent to them, they rejected Messiah and even prophesied that they will reject others that were going to come, particularly the apostles. God reserves or he seals up all of Israel's sins for punishment, which will come to a final conclusion in that nation's destruction, in the destruction of their temple and of their holy city. That is what 24, verse 24 is saying, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to your people and to your city. And all that's going to happen in A.D. 70. And the reserving, the sealing up of these sins indicates that within 70 weeks, Israel will have completed her transgression by crucifying Christ and by crucifying or, or, or rejecting and, and persecuting his apostles. Now, the second couplet begins with the third result, which says to make reconciliation for iniquity. Again, three and four go together as a couplet. Let me speak to number three. This idea for reconciliation, the very word is kafar. That's the Hebrew word for atonement. It's a very clear what this is saying, that this is referring to the atoning death of Jesus Christ when Messiah dies upon the cross, making the atonement, reconciling us together to God by his atoning work upon the cross. Well, that first part of the couplet then maps easily to the second part of the couplet where it says to bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, this is the objective work that Christ did upon the cross. The atoning work of Christ upon the cross is that which makes righteousness available to us. It is that which gives us His righteousness. This is what we call the great substitutionary atonement. Where Christ Himself took all of our sin upon Him and He died upon the cross and yet He took all of His righteousness that gave to us, and so this great substitutionary atonement. So the righteousness that we have, that in which we stand before God, is not our own. It is an alien righteousness. It is a robe in which Christ has clothed us. It's the only way that we can be acceptable to God. We simply need to show sorrow for our sins and turn away from them and turn toward God and accept 
Christ's righteousness by faith. This is bringing in everlasting righteousness. Before that time, the effectual manner in which that could be brought in was not available. While we have all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, they were merely object lessons pointing forward to really the true reality that would take care of it, and that was in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not only was Christ's atonement that affected righteousness and that, that brought in this everlasting righteousness, but when Christ comes, he's preaching the kingdom of God. And as he says, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe the gospel. The king is here. And the kingdom that all of the Old Testament prophets declared that would be true of the messianic kingdom, it would be a kingdom of righteousness. He would rule with the scepter of righteousness. So he brings in this messianic kingdom into this earth. It is an everlasting righteousness of which Daniel has spoken will never end. The last couplet begins with the fifth effect that's going to happen in those 70 weeks, and that is to seal up vision and prophecy. Sealing up a vision and prophecy refers to the vision and the prophecy that the angel was giving Daniel in the time in which he was praying. These very truths. And the prophecy that is being sealed up refers to that which would come in the 69th and 70th year from then when Jesus the Messiah would then be baptized, which would begin his public ministry as high priest and Messiah. And so for the next three to three and a half years of his public ministry, running right through to the death on the cross, these things were sealed up for that time. Teaching here that the eyes of the Jews and their ears were going to be sealed from understanding these things as a whole. And that's exactly what happened. This was prophesied. This is why Jesus would quote Isaiah when he says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you that hearing with ears you do not hear and seeing with eyes you do not see? He says in Matthew 13 about in these context of the kingdom parables, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. It has been sealed from them. Which brings us to the sixth result, to anoint the most holy. This could very likely refer to the time of Jesus' baptism where he did begin his public ministry and where the nation of Israel did not recognize or acknowledge it. That's the sealing up. But to anoint him, as it says here, to anoint the most holy, 
could refer very well to Jesus' baptism as he enters officially into his public ministry. He would then become, as he would say in Matthew 24, the new temple of God. And all of these aspects of the prophecy would then be fulfilled. When we think about the anointing in the Old Testament, particularly of priests and kings, it was with the anointing oil that the anointing would occur. And that anointing oil symbolized the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that would come down upon the particular person who is being anointed to empower them for the work that God has given them to do. So when David had the anointing of the Spirit upon him, he had the empowerment to fulfill his kingly duties that he had been called to. When a priest was anointed as the high priest or in Aaron's sons anointed, he was empowered with the Spirit to carry out the office that God had called him to. And here, the word that means Messiah comes from the very word that means anointed. It means to pour liquid over. That's where the word Messiah comes from. So we then have the word who has been anointed is messianic or Messiah. So there are a number of messiahs throughout the Old Testament with a small letter M, and they all pointed to the one messiah who would be anointed by the Spirit of God. And as Jesus is coming up out of his baptism, the Spirit of God descending upon him as a dove lights upon him, and we hear the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus from that moment was empowered by the Spirit of God for his office of his public ministry that he would carry carry all the way through his death and resurrection. And so, as he went through the gospel, or as he went right after he was baptized, he went through Galilee, and the message he preached in Galilee was that which you reflected on in Mark when he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. Now, this is a summary of what's going to happen in this 70 weeks. Now, we're going to look a little more in detail to the 70th week, which is the most controversial week of most commentators today. Many commentators, and particularly dispensational commentators, will remove the 70th week from the succession of the 69 and place it into our future. But that is not how the Scripture unveils it. That's not the natural course of the Scripture, and that's not a part of how the the prophecy should be understood. We see that in verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. The Messiah will now experience something after 69 weeks. And the natural reading of the text shows us that this is now into the 70th week, which will bring in the Jubilee of Jubilees. And what happens in the 70th week is given to us in verse 26. It says the Messiah will be cut off. That term cut off is a word for the death penalty. This indicates when Christ would be crucified. It is in that 70th week. 
Now, if you look at verse 26 and 27, you almost have to take them together because they're, they're parallel. The things that are given in verse 26, it's going to have some details in 27. Okay? So let's think about it that way. Verse 27 is going to provide a little more detail of explanation. In verse 27 it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. This is that 70th week. And the covenant that he, that is Christ here, is bringing fulfills all of those infinitive objectives back in verse 24. That's part of the covenant and the context of the covenant in which Daniel was praying, the, the year of Jubilee and the Jubilee of Jubilees. All of this is covenantal, and here we have this covenant that Christ has, has now ratified in the new covenant, of which was being prophesied, and the entire passage here is enveloped in this language. What is the covenant that's going to be confirmed? It's this messianic covenant of grace which he has come to fulfill with his people. And this covenant he then confirms in his own death upon the cross, the great sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. Today we eat a covenant meal. He tells us about the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. So as we consider what we partake of today, it is not bloody. It's bread and wine symbolizing that the covenant has begun and the sacrifice has been made and all of the effects of it are in play. Daniel was praying for his people Israel. And the angel said, I'm here to tell you about Israel and your city. Then he says, he's going to make a covenant with many. The many is actually referring to the faithful within the nation of Israel. As Paul would later say, they are not all of Israel who are of Israel or, uh, or who are Israel. That the faithful within Israel, not, as a, not Israel as the corporate entity, but Israel as Jews, the, the faithful within, like, like the apostles, disciples. The language is very similar to that servant psalm in Isaiah 52 and 53, where, where even in Isaiah 53 it says, By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So it's referring to the faithful Jews in Messiah's day. Now the confirmation of the covenant with Israel will occur in the middle of that 70th week, is what verse 27 says, in the middle of that 70th week is when Messiah will be cut off. Again, verse 27 is parallel to verse 26, but it's adding more details to it. So after the 69 weeks, see, halfway through that 70th week, verse 27 is going to tell us what happens, and that's when Messiah is cut off. Now, you might keep in mind here, halfway through that 70 weeks is about three to three and a half years after his baptism, and that's the time in which Christ died upon the cross, when the Jews called for his crucifixion. 
And we know that Jesus' ministry was focused on the Jews for three and a half years of his earthly ministry. That was his focus. Up to his death and his crucifixion, and then after that, the apostles' ministry were focused upon the Jews for about the three and a half years as well. And that's why in Romans 1, Paul says that the gospel comes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And we're not told when the 70th year concludes or some event that specifies when that is over. Some have actually suggested that it was probably or could have been the stoning of Stephen. Because at the stoning of Stephen, that's when the Jewish nation persecuted Christians and that persecution broke out officially. And the end of the 70th week corresponds to some aspect of the nation of Israel officially turning against Christianity, corresponding then to then the gospel being taken out to the Gentiles. And that's why at the stoning of of, of Stephen, there was one there called Saul of Tarshish, whose primarily apostolic ministry would be to the Gentiles. And so we have this connection going on. Here was Israel's final culminating breaking of the covenant by rejecting the Messiah of the covenant. And there is where all of Matthew 24 is going to come to a head. In the middle of the 70th week, when Christ was crucified, verse 26 that says that Messiah will bring an end to the sacrifice His once and for all sacrifice put an end to all of the previous sacrifices, which were but just an object lesson of what is going to take place upon the cross. It was a shadow of that which is to come. It was really just a two-dimensional image, if you will. I've used this illustration in the past, but if I were to describe to you, let's say, in my wife, let's say you don't know us as a couple and I just met you and, and they say, well, tell me about your wife and I take a picture out of my wallet and I show, or actually my iPhone, these days, and I show you a picture of my wife. You're seeing something in one moment in time when it's two-dimensional and I begin describing her to you. But then perhaps she walks into the room and I'm like, oh, Never mind. And I put the picture away and said, well, here's my wife now. Let me introduce you to her. Now the real thing has shown up in all of life and all of personhood, right? So you no longer need me to talk from an image. That's exactly the picture of the Old Testament prophecies and the sacrificial system. When Christ arrives, there's no longer any need to talk from a two-dimensional object lesson. So what happens when Christ dies upon the cross? The veil in the temple was rent in two, just like I might take the picture of my wife and say, put it back in my pocket or throw it away and say, well, here's what I'm talking about. Here's the real thing. And so that's what happens. He puts an end to the sacrifice and to that entire ceremonial law. So now that Jesus arrives, there's no more need for the sacrificial system. And God shows his official disestablishment of the entire thing, legally so, at that moment when he tears the veil in the temple. 
That brings us to the latter portion of verse 26 and 27. What are we to make of it when he says something about this prince who's going to come and destroy the city and the sanctuary? Verse 26 informs us that two events are going to occur after the 69th week. The first event that's going to occur after the 69th week was Messiah was going to be cut off, which happens in the middle of the 70th week. And the second thing that's going to happen is that the city and the sanctuary are destroyed. Now, the destruction of the city and the sanctuary are the consequences of cutting off the Messiah. The destruction of the city and the sanctuary does not necessarily fall within the 70th week. It just happens after the 69th week. That's how the scripture unfolds it. While we are told specifically the timing when Messiah was cut off, it's the middle of the way through the 70th week, we are not told specifically when the sanctuary and the city would be destroyed. But that would be a consequence of the former action. So all of this now occurs after the 69th week. The sealing up of Israel's sins for the day of punishment. Israel's climactic sin in rejecting and crucifying her Messiah that she cradled into this world. Her completing the transgression. The cutting off of Messiah. And all of this was then reserved and sealed up for God's punishment of that nation, which comes after then the 70 weeks. In verse 26, the phrase says, till the end of wars of desolations. Jesus refers to that in Matthew 24, that's going to come within their generation that he lived in Matthew 24. He's going to actually quote from this passage in Daniel, which we'll get to. That prophesied end was coming in A.D. 70, exactly as Christ made clear in Matthew 24 and warned them about. In verse 26, the prince of the people shall destroy the city and the temple the sanctuary, and that prince was the Roman emperor Titus who in A.D. 70 came into Jerusalem and burned it down and destroyed the city and temple alike. And never since has the temple been rebuilt or sacrifices been offered in that city. God has seen to that and has sealed up that as well. That's going to bring us into Matthew 24. These 70 weeks are continuous. There's no reason to try to figure out why the 70th week would be some kind of future event to that case and why there's some big gap here. It doesn't make sense uh, logically. It doesn't make sense covenantally. It doesn't flow the natural order of the exegesis of the prophecy itself. But yet that is where many commentators, particularly today in the dispensational camp, would have you think And it would explain this in much different terms. 
This prophecy is about Messiah coming and about the judgment he was going to bring in that generation upon the nation of Israel for rejecting and crucifying him. And his judgment was severe. When you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and even if you acknowledge him with your lips, but your heart is far from him, he will, his judgment will be severe, particularly to his people who have been identified with him, either by circumcision in the old or by baptism in the new. And so the prophecy like this is to stir us up into love and good works and to be faithful in the covenant faithfulness to which he has called us. And yet with all that we can look with great longing and anticipation, with joy and gladness, knowing that all of the things that still are in our future, the second coming of the bodily Christ, who is coming in bodily form, where heaven comes down to earth, where we are resurrected, where there will be a final judgment between the sheep and the goats, and the, the, the wicked will depart and be cast into hell for everlasting punishment, and the righteous will be resurrected to live here on the earth when heaven comes down and will enjoy the presence of God here. We can look forward to that with great anticipation and with great certainty according to the truth of the word because this is in our future still, but now we can look back in our past and say it was just as God said it before. And it came to pass exactly like he prophesied to Daniel. And we can look back with some ambiguity as far as the precision of the time, but with pretty good understanding of the time and with no doubt whatsoever the ambiguity, that Messiah was Jesus. He is the one that died for our sins. He is the one that brought in everlasting righteousness. His kingdom is everlasting. It was prophesied. It is here. We are a part of it. And great is our great King of kings. Great is this Lord of heaven. Great is our great high priest who intercedes for us and whose prayers are efficacious for us, who has been sympathizing with all of our infirmities yet without sin, and he comes to our aid to give us grace and mercy in our time of need. Oh, he knows our need. And he promises. And he delivers exactly on what he promises. So may we be faithful today, ever trusting in his word. He does not want us to be ignorant, but wants us to understand the will of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we reflect upon these prophecies of old, in a time given when Daniel was lamenting for his people and confessing the sins of the nation including his own sins along with it, you came and spoke to him with words of truth and prophecy that we now can look behind us and see their fulfillment in Jesus, the great Messiah, and how all of these pieces and parts of the prophecy come to fit in him and him only. We're thankful that you have cleansed us and washed us and brought righteousness upon us by clothing us in his righteousness. 
For taking all of our sins and propitiating and appeasing your wrath by atoning for that with his own death and blood. As we come to this covenant meal, may we rejoice knowing that he is our Savior. He is our King. He is our High Priest. And with him, we have life everlasting and evermore. And we have great hope for tomorrow. With all those things, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith for living life faithfully today. May we be who you want us to be today. More godly than yesterday and faithful today. Bring forth the fruit of righteousness in our lives, even if it means chastening us. And for a time which will not be pleasant, but we desire the fruits of righteousness to flourish in our lives. So may it be to the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus we pray. Amen.